Hey everyone, this week's lesson is the Bible and prophecy. Thank you for joining me. This is lesson 11 in this quarter's Sabbath school quarterly, which is entitled How to Interpret Scripture. Now this week we're talking about how to interpret prophecy. Saturday's lesson talks about John 14, 24, where Jesus says, These things I have told you before they come to pass, so when they do come to pass, you may believe. So the purpose of prophecy or predictions about the future, according to Jesus, is to increase our faith, to help us to believe. So then the lesson points out that this leads to a crucial, crucial question, and that is how do we interpret prophecy correctly so that we know when a prophecy has indeed come to pass? This is important. So God cares for us. God is concerned for us. And so he wants us to know what's happening, and he wants our belief to be strong, our faith to be strong. And so he tells us things before they come to pass so that when they come to pass, we can, be, we can be okay with it. We can maintain our belief so we can hold on to our confidence and our boast in him until the end so that we're not shaken away so that we don't fall away. Okay, so that's the purpose of prophecy according to Jesus in John 14, 29. But as the lesson points out, Okay, but we've got to make sure we're interpreting prophecy correctly. There are three schools of interpretation when it comes to the predictive prophecies of the Bible. The first is called preterism, which takes all of the prophecies and turns them into historical accounts written in symbolic form. So in essence, preterism doesn't really believe that the predictive prophecies of the Bible were actual prophecies. It, it believes, it teaches that this is just history written in symbols. And that's why, you know, it's, that's kind of the, the basic premise. And most of the people who adhere to the preterist view of prophetic interpretation are not believers. They're usually skeptical scholars, higher critics, who have no real faith in the Bible as the Word of God. They just see it as a document written by ancient scholars to advance their particular preferred view of reality. Then there's the Futurist school of interpretation. And the Futurists, they take all of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, or at least most of them, or parts of them, and they project them into the future beyond an event that they call the secret rapture. So they believe that at some point in the near future, the Christian church is going to be whisked away to heaven in a rapture, in a secret rapture, uh, and they'll just disappear. You know, planes will be left empty without pilots, cars will be left empty without drivers, and all of a sudden, all true believers in Christ will be whisked away to heaven, and then there will be this, this, this time where the prophecies of the book of Revelation uh, unfold. Then the third school of thought is the historicist school of prophetic interpretation, and that's the classical Protestant view of interpreting the prophecies of the Bible. And, it, and I'll just give you the simplest and probably not the best uh, description of what historicism is as a school of prophetic interpretation. But 
the historicist view affirms that the prophets made predictions of how history would unfold from their time until the very end of the world. So the apocalyptic prophecies in the historicist view of prophetic interpretation are, 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 are prophecies that extend through long ages and long periods of time from the time of the prophets who proclaimed them until the very end of the world, or at least from ancient times stretching forward towards the end of time. So history written in advance. And so therefore we should be able, according to this school of thought, track with the prophecies through the course of time and like they could journey with us through time. So the prophecies in the historicist view function as a guidebook to guide believers through time. So Daniel makes prophetic predictions, John makes prophetic predictions, they couch these prophetic predictions in symbol and we take those symbols, those codes, we interpret them with scripture and they guide us through history so that God can be our constant companion and constant and close friend. So I want to look at one quick verse of scripture that I believe does away with the notion of futurism just in, in this one particular verse. There's lots of verses we can go to, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to reference Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. Now remember, futurism purports that the bulk of the prophecies of the book of Revelation are for a, a period of time post-rapture, okay, post-rapture. And that rapture is to rapture the church away from earth, up to heaven. And then there'll be the great tribulation and all these crazy apocalyptic prophecies will begin to unfold. But notice this, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. Now, when Jesus says these things, he means the book of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you the things in the book of Revelation. For, the next word says, the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the book of Revelation in totality, according to Jesus, is relevant in the churches. Now, how could it be relevant in the churches if the churches are going to be raptured before the prophecies in the book of Revelation are going to unfold? Doesn't make any sense. This is an indication that the historicist view is the correct view that God predicted uh, future events, historical events, before they happen, so that the church could journey through time till the very end and have his voice with them, his guidance with them through the prophecies. God would guide them uh, as they journey through time, through his prophetic word. Uh, I think, yeah, th there's just so much more that could be said on this subject, but this, this one verse alone, I think, dismantles the whole notion that the church is going to be raptured away and then the prophecies of Revelation will begin to unfold. Jesus here says the whole book of Revelation is relevant to the church. Therefore, the church remains throughout the course of time until the very end. Uh, okay, now, the lesson points our attention to Daniel chapter 2, 7, and 8. And in Daniel chapter 2, we see that God gives a prophecy to King Nebuchadnezzar, the ancient Neo-Babylonian king. He has trouble. He doesn't just have trouble. He can't understand what the dream means. And he calls in his wise men to interpret the dream for him. This is found in Daniel chapter 2. They can't do it. 
he decides he's going to exterminate them all. Daniel, a captive of Israel, who has the gift of prophecy, begs for a little bit of time from Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who has been sent to kill him because he's considered one of the wise men. The king gives him time, and Daniel prays with his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who are also captives in Babylon. And in a night vision, God reveals to Daniel the dream that the king was having and its interpretation. And so Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar and describes to him that he had a dream of a great metal image that had a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And then the king saw a stone that was cut out without hands that flew through the sky and struck the image on its feet. And the whole image was, was vaporized. It was turned into dust of the summer threshing floor. And then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he was having. Nebuchadnezzar is gobsmacked. He's blown away. He's freaking out. And then Daniel proceeds to give the interpretation of the dream. It begins in verse 31 of, of Daniel chapter 2. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel the prophet says to Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his empire, is represented in this dream by the head of gold. And then he says, but after you will arise another kingdom, then a third kingdom of bronze and a fourth of iron, dreadful and terribly strong. So Daniel, the one who wrote the apocalyptic prophecies in the book of Daniel, the prophecies that extend to the very end of time, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar in this prophecy of Daniel 2 that you represent the first kingdom in the prophecy, in the line of kingdoms lined up in the prophecy. You are the head of gold. So the gold represents your kingdom. But after you will come another kingdom. So he predicts a second kingdom that would succeed Babylon, and then a third kingdom that would succeed that second kingdom, and then a fourth kingdom that would succeed that third kingdom. And then he talks about the divisions of the fourth kingdom and conditions in the divisions of the fourth kingdom. And then he talks about how the stone represents God's kingdom and how God's kingdom will come and destroy all previous kingdoms and, and all traces of the previous kingdoms and it would become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. And it talks about how God's kingdom would last forever because God's kingdom is built on better principles than men's kingdoms. It's built on justice and love and fairness and equity. And it's a place of unselfishness and giving an eternal blessing for all. It's, it's God's hope for humanity. It's God's destiny for us all to be a part of his eternal, unchanging, everlasting kingdom. So, this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 is an indication of which school of prophetic interpretation is the one that the Bible is most biblical and, and most true and most accurate. If preterism is true, then why in the world is Daniel giving a prophecy? Why is, God, why is Daniel talking about God's kingdom being set up at the end of time and then lining up successive nations that are to lead to that end? If, in fact, the prophecies are just histories that, you know, historical stories written down in the 2nd century B.C. 
by Jewish scholars who just symbolized them and claimed that they were prophecies. You know, that's just, really, that the preterism is just the skeptic's spin on prophecy. It's a diversionary tactic in my estimation. It's just a way to, to not take the prophecies seriously. It's the way to kind of patronize the scripture. It's a way to be condescending, you know, like we really smart people who know better than these superstitious fools would never dare consider that there's something to be really uh, valued in scripture. There's, you know, something to be taken serious in scripture. This is just all history. But, but look, the author of the book of Daniel didn't think so because he says to Nebuchadnezzar in Israel, he says that Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, and after you will come another kingdom, then another, then another, then that other would divide. And then in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So Daniel 2 sees prophecy as stretching from the time of Daniel and extending all the way to the very end of time. This is a case for historicism. And, uh, and this is the school of prophetic interpretation that Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, hold to be true. And we are, by and large, the last Protestant denomination wholesale who accepts historicism. It's unfortunate that some of our own teachers and leaders reject it now too. That's the trend. That's fashionable. But the Bible is pretty clear that, that historicism is the, is, the, is the way that we should interpret prophecy. The lesson points our attention also to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. It lines up these two chapters and the, the events in these two chapters to affirm the historicist approach to prophetic interpretation. It's quite impressive, really, and it's quite faith-building. I think it's, it's very much a faith-building exercise to study Daniel chapter 7 and 8 when you utilize the historicist approach to prophetic interpretation. Jesus says in John 14, 29, as we've noted, these things I have told you before they come to pass, so that when they come to pass, you might believe. Now, he's talking about the, the local circumstance the disciples are in, but the principle applies to all prophecy. And that is that, that God predicts the future so that our faith would remain strong in him, so that we could believe in him um, from now until forever. Daniel chapter 7, you see four nations lined up, just like you saw in Daniel chapter 2. These nations are not represented as metals in Daniel 7, but they're represented as beasts, uh, predatory animals that are really bizarre in nature. This is a great way to describe human powers, by the way, because human nations are predatory. They consume and they destroy. They're opportunistic and selfish, just like a predator. They want to satisfy themselves on the flesh of others. They come to preeminence and into power by destroying life, by taking life, by killing. That's how they survive. It's all about me. It's self-interest. It's domination and power and control, just like a predator. And so Daniel chapter 7 describes these human nations, these human powers, as predatory animals. The first is a lion with two wings that's eventually made to stand on two feet and given a heart of a man. Then there's a bear with one side, one side raised up and has three ribs in its mouth. Then there's a leopard with four heads and four wings, wings representing speed of conquest. A leopard's a relatively agile and fast animal. And then the fourth is a nondescript and dreadful, terrible beast uh, that's just not likened to any earthly animal. And then uh, 
there's ten horns that extend out of this fourth beast's head, and then there's a little horn that comes up among those ten horns that has a mouth that speaks pompous words and has eyes like the eyes of a man, and that uh, basically becomes the central feature in, that, in the rest of the book of uh, Daniel. Not the central feature, but the central figure, earthly figure, for the rest of the book, the rest of the chapter of Daniel 7. So you see this successive line of kingdoms being mentioned in Daniel 7, same line of nations, same lineup of kingdoms, earthly powers, as in Daniel chapter 2. The, the parallels are, are compelling. You have four kingdoms, then you have the division of the fourth, and then you have God's kingdom being set up. In Daniel chapter 7, you see the judgment of God beginning, and then the kingdom of God given, the kingdom of earth, and the kingdom given to the saints of the Most High. In Daniel chapter 2, you saw uh, the stone that was cut out without hands, uh, smashing the, the image in God's kingdom being set up. So the parallels are, are striking, and we can be sure that these prophecies are talking about the same time frame. Large spans of Earth's history. This is not futurism, this is not predatorism, this is historicism. This is, this is, this is, these are nations that extend from the time of the prophet to the very end. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, you have the second of those four earthly powers mentioned, uh, Persia, and then the fourth, or sorry, the second and Persia, and then the third, which is Greece. It's quite interesting, really. Uh, it lines up quite well to Daniel chapter 7. So let's just, for a quick review, I'm sure someone's getting a little bit confused and lost because of all the information we're considering at once, but it's just important to do this because it really gives us a powerful, powerful argument for the historicist view of prophetic interpretation. So Daniel 2, four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome divides, conditions in Rome are described, and then God sets up his kingdom. That's prophecy. That's the prophecy in Daniel 2. Daniel 7, four beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Ten horns on the head of the fourth beast, that's the ten toes on the image, the division of Rome. And then a little horn comes up, that's an added piece of information that Daniel 2 doesn't give. That's the principle of repeat and enlarge. That little horn comes up, it's a new figure, it's an original uh, uh, person, original from Daniel 2. Uh, and then what this little horn does is described, and then the judgment of God is, is, is enters in, God judges, and then... The earth is given to the saints of the Most High. So that's Daniel chapter 7, and then now Daniel 8. Babylon is not mentioned, but the prophecy of Daniel 8 begins with Medo-Persia, and then goes to Greece, and then the little horn is mentioned, and then a sanctuary cleansing is mentioned. Okay, now this is quite powerful. The sanctuary cleansing is parallel to and connected with the judgment of Daniel 7. You line these prophecies up because the prophecies are not being given in isolation. They are companion prophecies that are given by God to help us to understand what the future was going to look like from the time of Daniel stretching forward through time until the very end. Daniel 2 serves as the, as the foundational prophecy, the underlying basic prophecy. Then you have Daniel 7, which expands upon Daniel 2, and then you have Daniel 8, which expands upon Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, you have the fourth empire, Rome, dividing into the European nations, and then you have a little horn coming up, doing blasphemous things, serving as uh, a persecuting power against God's saints, and then God's judgment comes, and things are set straight. 
things are set straight, and then the kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. This parallels the, the mountain of Daniel chapter 2. And then in Daniel chapter 8, you don't see the judgment per se, but you kind of do through the cleansing of the sanctuary or the sanctuary being restored. There's a sanctuary in heaven. It's the true tabernacle which God erected and not man, and the earthly sanctuary of the Hebrew nation served as an example, according to Hebrews 9. It was a symbol for the time that then was, until Jesus came, did his earthly ministry, died, was buried, was resurrected, and then became the high priest of the human race, interceding on our behalf now in the heavenly sanctuary. In the earthly sanctuary, there was a judgment. It was called the Day of Atonement when the sanctuary was cleansed. That's when the sanctuary was made right. That's where all records were straightened out. And it was seen, it was, it was, it was known who was truly repentant in God's name and who had come to God in confession and sincerity. Daniel 8 is referencing the antitype, the true Day of Atonement. Uh, that parallels to the judgment of Daniel 7. Okay, so check this out. In Daniel 7, there's a prophetic time frame given that predicts how long the Antichrist power was going to reign, was going to rule. It was 1,260 prophetic days or 42 months or a time, times, and dividing of time, which is three and a half years of prophetic time. Now, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. Okay. So you have a time frame that is showing us historically how long the Antichrist would have supreme power on earth. And then you have a time frame in Daniel 8 given to describe how long it would be until God takes care of this business that's going on on earth. How long would God allow all these abominable acts to be done on earth before he does something about it? And then the answer in verse 14 is until 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. Okay, another prophetic time period. Now, the historicist school of prophetic interpretation has always claimed that days in symbolic Bible prophecy refer to years. Now, the lesson talks about this concept, this principle of a day for a year in prophetic interpretation. It points out Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6 in Numbers 14.34 and how in both instances, days represent a year. In Ezekiel 4, God asks Ezekiel, beginning in verse 1, to act out a prophecy. So you have a prophecy being acted out symbolically. And in that symbolic prophecy acted out by Ezekiel, God says in verse 6, I have given you a day for a year. Or in other words, he's going to have to represent for a day the equivalent amount of time. Oh, sorry, he's going to have to act out his prophecy a certain amount of days, which represent a certain amount of years. So you have a day for a year. Now, the lesson points out a few other indications that a day in symbolic Bible prophecy represents a year. I would recommend a book called Selected Studies on Prophetic Interpretation, and it was written by the late William Shea, and it's part of the Biblical Research Institute's response to Desmond Ford's theology called the Daniel and Revelation Study Committee. So if you have not become familiar with these theological studies, you have to, okay? It's just the, the, the best scholarly research, see, I would say it's the best scholarly research the Seventh-day Adventist Church has ever done. 
and it buttresses the truthfulness of the Adventist position more than anything. I have found a lot in Australia of people are ignorant of the study that the church has done in response to the claims of Desmond Ford and his theology. There are a lot of remnants of Desmond Ford's theology here in Australia, and a lot of false constructs are placed upon the fundamental teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, in particular, this idea of the sanctuary cleansing and the antitypical Day of Atonement, which is biblical, it's theologically accurate, it is not in any way contrary to gospel-centeredness. And so you have a false tension created by Ford theology between the gospel and legalistic perfectionism and this idea of legalistic perfectionism, if you didn't know, is, is attached to the sanctuary teaching, the Day of Atonement teaching, and uh, it's very unfortunate. And it's, it wasn't just Desmond Ford and, and his, his disciples who did that, it was other Adventists as well, uh, who are actually guilty of placing a legalistic spin on a, on a gospel-centered teaching. But So back to the day for a year. I would recommend everyone gets that book, Selected Studies, of prophetic interpretation, William Shea lays out about 10 powerful biblical arguments that show beyond the shadow of a doubt that when interpreting apocalyptic prophecies, prophecies that have to do with the end of time, in the symbolic books of Daniel and Revelation, a day equals a year. It's, it's just no doubt about it. No doubt. Uh, one of the arguments is that the powers represented in symbols in the prophecies they span hundreds and hundreds of years, many of them. And if you were to interpret those time frames literally, they would really have no significance whatsoever. So Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the nations mentioned in symbols in Daniel 2 and 7 and 8, you know, the, the Babylonians persecuted for years, for decades, uh, God's people. They placed them in exile and made them slaves, and destroyed their country, and dismantled their political system. They just destroyed them for a long time, for over 70, you know, 70 years, roughly, almost. Then the Persians, they persecuted for a long period of time. The Greeks, the Romans, they oppressed God's people, they persecuted God's people. Now, a three-and-a-half-year time frame is attached to this little horn in Daniel 7, this antichrist figure of Daniel 7, which is also represented in Revelation 13 as an amalgamated beast. And so this, this time frame, 1,260 years of supremacy is assigned to this power. Sorry, 1,260 days of supremacy is assigned to this power. And what relevance, what significance does a literal three and a half year period of persecution have in the light of the fact that the power that it's attached to has lasted thousands of years and persecuted for most of that time. So that's a, that's a really powerful argument in favor of the idea for a day, a day for a year, because the power that those time frames are attached to lasted for ages. The central focus of opposition to God in Daniel 7 is that little horn. It's presented as like the arch enemy, you know, the epitome of opposition to God. Well, if it's reign of persecution was less than Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. You know, why, why? There's a contradiction there. That's just, that doesn't make any sense. Why present the little horn as the epitome of opposition to God while it persecutes for just three and a half years when all the previous powers that opposed God's people 
and oppressed God's people did it for a lot longer than that, you get the point. It's a good argument. Secondly, the time frames are presented in unique quantities. So 2,300 days, 1,260 days. These are really unique ways to communicate that amount of time, and, and they're, it's unique to the prophecies, the prophetic prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. So that's an indication that these are symbolic time frames. Further to this, the terms attached to these time frames are unusual. Like 2,300 days, you know, 1,260 days times time and the dividing of times. That's, that's not how you would normally communicate that amount of time. You use different terms and different time frames, uh, different language. So this indicates together that these are symbolic periods of time and a day represents a year. Thirdly, something that the lesson doesn't bring out is that in the Jewish economy, the years were ordered after the weekly cycle so that every seven years you had a sabbatical year where people would allow their fields to rest and just lay bare. This helps us to understand that in the Jewish mind, days and years connect. There is a corollary between days and years because years were ordered in the sequence of days. And so you've got time frames in the midst of symbolic prophecies that are given in unique quantities with unique terms. You've got the fact that these powers that these time frames are attached to. So this communicates these are symbolic time frames. And there's more evidence too, but I think this just little bit of information, little bit of evidence suffices. And lastly, by the way, it really fits perfectly. And it, it, it provides compelling proof that the historicist school of prophetic interpretation is the, the right one. Okay, so you have in the prophecies of Daniel 2, 7, and 8, Babylon in Daniel 2 and 7, and then in all three chapters, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and then a judgment or sanctuary cleansing because of or as a response to the abominations of this little horn, okay? Now, the same time frame, 1,260 days of supremacy is attached to the amalgamated beast of Revelation 13, which is a beast that's compiled or composed of a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And it makes sense that this is the little horn because it shares all the same characteristics. And further to that, every successive power in the course of human history is going to retain characteristics of the previous powers. And so the little horn of Daniel 7 that comes out of Rome, which succeeded Greece, Medo-Persia, and Babylon, and therefore is going to have certain of its characteristics, you know, is, is that makes sense then that that little horn would also maintain some of the characteristics of all of the successive powers of the territory that it's now inhabiting. Okay, so it's, it's a successor, it's a successing power, succeeding power. So Revelation 13, you see a power that has obviously succeeded, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Uh, so you have here Rome in a certain form. Um, it, but it's, it's powerful because this, this beast of Revelation 13, when you study Revelation 13, 1 through 10, and you see this beast that's composed of symbols that represented pagan nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, you, you see there, just indicated through the symbology, this is a pagan power, an essentially pagan power. It's composed of imagery that represents pagan nations, how they worshipped, their dispositions, their attitudes, that's the essential nature of this power in Revelation 13. It's an essentially pagan power. But it mirrors Jesus. 
you see different elements of the prophecy in Revelation 13 where you see these like reflections of Jesus. So this beast is seen coming out of the water. This beast, according to the prophecy, receives a deadly wound, but the deadly wound is healed. A deadly wound is the kind of wound that kills you. So this, this beast, in effect, this essentially pagan power, at some point in its history, receives a deadly wound, but it doesn't fully die. There's a resurrection that happens. Does this sound familiar to you? <laughs> Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he comes up out of the water. He received a deadly wound, but his deadly wound, he was healed. He was resurrected. And this uh, beast power reigns for 1,260 days. Jesus' ministry lasted for three and a half years, which is in the Jewish calendar, 1,260 days. So once again, there's a reflection there of Jesus. It's a copying of the ministry of Jesus. Further to this, the Bible says that this beast receives his power, his seat, and his authority from the dragon. So it comes from the father. You know, it gets its power from the, the devil. The devil's its father. Jesus receives his power, his seat, and his authority from God the Father. So this is a paganized form of Christianity. In Revelation 13, it's, it's essentially pagan organization that has a Christian veneer. We see through the course of Christian history that the Christian church inculcated pagan ideas. So in the 3rd century B.C., or sorry, the 3rd century A.D., Christianity fell. You know, Rome, and, R Rome became Christianized, but really was not converted. And so Christianity itself merged with paganism. So it merged with Rome. And Rome was a successor of Greek, Persian, and Babylonian culture. So the church, in essence, became, the Christian church, in essence, became Babylonian, Persian, and Greek. But there was a flair, a flavor of Christianity. This is what the Bible's teaching. This amounted through the medieval church. This, this, this amounted in or came to be the medieval Christian church ruled by popes and bishops and all of this. And it was terribly persecuting. Christianity was terribly persecuting, horrifically persecuting. It became blasphemous and proud, arrogant and terrible, just like the pagan nations before. And this is Antichrist. And this is what the little horn is represented. This is representing in Daniel 7. It's what the little horn of Daniel 8 represents. And then 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Jesus is up in heaven ministering in the true tabernacle, offering true power, true salvation. And then there's this, this paganized organization on earth that's, that's kind of replacing him, that's supplanting him with its own priests and its own sanctuary and its own system of worship. It's subverting the true worship of God. That's described in verse 13 of, of Daniel 8. How long is this going to go on? How long is this going to go on? Well, until 2,300 days, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. So did the Christian church in its paganized form, in its Roman form, in its papal Roman form, under that kind of hierarchical system, did the Christian church, the public Christian church or the Roman Catholic church of the ancient days, did it rule for 1,260 years? Absolutely. Absolutely. In 533, a decree by the Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian declared the Pope who sat in Rome to be the secular and sacred ruler of all affairs in Western Europe. But that didn't come into effect fully until the year 538 AD. If you count forward 1,260 years, you come to the year 1798. And in 1798, 
a French general. By a general of Napoleon, with whose last name was Berthier. I can't remember his first name, but I'll, I'll just read a couple of quotes here, just in regards to this 1260 prophetic day period. This is from the History of the Christian Church, Volume 3, page 327, and it says, The Church's power became supreme in Christendom in 538 AD due to a letter of the Roman Emperor Justinian, known as Justinian's Decree, which set up and acknowledged the Bishop of Rome as the head of all churches. It gave the Church political power, civil power, as well as ecclesiastical power. So the Roman Catholic Church became the successor, the Roman Catholic Pope became the successor of the Western Roman Emperor. At that time, the Emperor Justinian was sitting over in Constantinople. This letter became part of Justinian's code, the fundamental law of the empire, and the year, and that year, Pope Vigilius ascended the throne under the military protection of Belisarius. Okay, now, it's just powerful. So, the 1260 prophetic day, or literal year time frame, begins in 538. And then, notice this, from the Encyclopedia Americana 1941, I found this reference in the library in Flint, Michigan, after I spent eight hours there looking for non-church information, just from encyclopedias and whatnot. Listen to this. Regarding the end of papal supremacy, or the supremacy of paganized Christianity in the world, in 1798, he, Berthier, or Berthier, made his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. Interesting. This is a statement from the Modern Papacy, page 1, London Catholic Truth Society, Reverend Joseph Rickaby, an English Jesuit. Notice what it says. When in 1798, Pope Pius V fell grievously ill, Napoleon, who was on the verge of taking over Europe, gave orders that in the event of his death, no successor should be elected to his office, and that the papacy should be discontinued. A deadly wound should be given to it. It should be dead. It should be killed. But the Pope recovered. The peace was soon broken. Berthier entered Rome on the 10th February 1798 and proclaimed a republic. The aged pontiff refused to violate his oath by recognizing it and was hurried from prison to prison in France. No wonder that half of Europe thought Napoleon's veto would be obeyed, and that with the Pope, the papacy was dead. Guys, that's heavy. I mean, 1,260 days. That's what the Bible predicted. Uh, this is strong evidence that the historicist school of interpretation is correct. The starting point for the 2,300-day prophecy, we went into it in detail last quarter when we did a Sabbath school commentary on Daniel chapter 8. You can go on to the North New South Wales Conference Evangelism department webpage to our resources link and you can find a whole commentary on Daniel chapter 8. I think we did a fantastic job of demonstrating and showing that the little horn of Daniel 8 was in fact the same power as the little horn of Daniel 7 and that the starting date for that 2300 prophetic day literal year prophecy is found in Daniel chapter 9. And that time, that point in time was 457 BC. It was from the going forth of a command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. That's what Daniel 9.25 says. So from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would be 483 prophetic days. That brings us to 27 AD in that prophecy, and, and that's when Jesus arrived on the scene. This confirms that uh, the 2300-day prophecy 
is sure it's true. Anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning too many things. I know I'm sorry for those of you guys who are not terribly initiated with this, the chapters, but just let me say for the point of this commentary, 457 BC takes us to 1844, the great disappointment of the Advent movement People thought that Jesus was going to come back because they misinterpreted the 2,300-day prophecy and didn't understand that it was leading to the end of Christ's work on behalf of humanity in the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, it was not leading to the second coming of Christ. And like the apostles, who were disappointed at the death of Jesus, but then they revived after his resurrection, the Advent believers, they were, they were sorely disappointed in 1844, when Jesus didn't return, when the 2,300-day prophecy terminated. But they revived and were re-encouraged when they revisited Scripture and realized that the 2,300-day time frame, they, they, they accurately understood the texts. But where they were mistaken was what it led to. And the Advent, the Seventh-day Adventist Church movement, uh, was formed out of that great disappointment, just like the Christian church was formed out of a great disappointment. There's a parallel there, and this parallel is predicted in Daniel chapter 10, or sorry, Revelation chapter 10, that the great disappointment of the Advent awakening, uh, the Adventist movement, it's there in Revelation chapter 10. This is all powerful evidence that the Bible can be trusted. I mean, really, what are the odds that 1,260 years would be the time frame that Paganized Christianity would rule the earth and have total sway over all civil, all Western civilization. I mean, Daniel the prophet is mentioning this, guys, hundreds of years before Christ. You know, this is, this is unbelievable. In the 6th century BC, here we go. This man is making these predictions. How could this not be inspired? It, it's overwhelming proof that the Bible is the word of God and we can trust what it says. Further to this... We are living, I think very clearly, in earth's final hours. The Lord Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He's pleading on our behalf, and judgment has begun. Now, just the last, last couple thoughts. Uh, the lesson brings out what it calls typology as prophecy. And I think this is really, really cool. The Bible does this a lot, where... You see in a local literal circumstance, like, like God interacting with people and lots of things unfolding, but that that circumstance actually metaphorically is communicating a larger universal uh, reality that's to come. So the local literal circumstance itself becomes a prophecy that allegorizes what's going to take place in the future. Don't know if my language is, is perfect here in what I'm explaining, but I think you guys can get what I'm trying to say. And I'll give you an example of this. Hebrews 3 and 4 draws from the Old Testament story of the deliverance of the Israelites at the hand of Moses and, and their journey toward the promised land. And they're entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And so what happens is, is the book of Hebrews uses the story of Moses' delivering the Israelites and Joshua leading them into the promised land as a prophecy of Jesus freeing us from the slavery of sin and like Joshua leading us into the promised land and his efficacy, his, his, his ability to do that. 
the efficacy of his sacrifice and the competency of his leadership and how Jesus is faithful in his house and can do what Moses did in his house. And so you see that a historical event that really happened is used as a type or a symbol for prof- a prophetic reality that's coming, that's to come. This is all over uh, the Bible, and this is, I think, a powerful indication that we should interpret prophecy along historicist lines. Hi- history is prophecy fulfilled, and prophecy is history in advance. That's the only way that John 14, 29 makes any sense, that these things I have told you before they come to pass, so that when they come to pass, you might believe God loves us and wants to guide us carefully through time, and therefore he uses prophecy so that we can know what's going to happen, so that we're aware of what's going on as we journey through time. There's no use in, in communicating prophetic events that are just like off into the nether nether future, or that are just coded histories that have no relevance to us. Historicism teaches a God who really cares for people and who really practically gives them guidance and and shows them love as as they live and journey through life and through time. I have a friend named Lyle Southwell, and he uses this really good analogy. And in case you haven't heard it, this is how I'll end this commentary lesson for today. He says, imagine a woman showing up at the hospital who has been pregnant for nine months, but she was unaware of it. And now this happens sometimes, strangely enough, It, it can happen where a woman just doesn't know that a baby's growing inside of her. And so this woman shows up at the hospital and she's having contractions and she she doesn't know what's going on. She's just in pain. It's excruciating. And the hospital, the doctors, the nurses decide that they're not going to tell her what she's going through, what's happening to her body. And imagine being in her situation. How would that feel? How would you feel? You'd be terrified. You'd be horrified. What in the world is happening? And then imagine she has a baby and she didn't even know she was pregnant. I mean, how would she feel? It would be very scary. Now, on the other hand, compare that scenario to a woman who knows she's pregnant and she goes to the hospital. Or maybe she doesn't know she's pregnant. And then she gets to the hospital and the doctors and nurses, they communicate to her, oh, hey, this is what's going on. And by the way, this is what's going to happen. And then compare that to another scenario where a woman knows she's pregnant. She's got a midwife who coaches her through the pregnancy process. And then she gets to the hospital to deliver the baby. And the midwives and the doctors and the nurses, they're just there coaching her, supporting her, guiding her and communicating to her what to expect and how she can handle what she feels. Now, the more information that the woman has that helps her to understand what she's going through, the more uh, love she's receiving, the more the more she's going to be, you know, have peace and and be okay with what's transpiring. And this is prophecy: is God loves us so terribly much that He He wants to just give us information about the future, so we really know what's happening, and guide His church and His people through time. This is an argument for historicism. Anyways, guys, God bless you. Have a fantastic Sabbath. I hope this has been of use to you, and we will see you next week. All the best. In Jesus' name, take care. Bye.